Get out now. There's still time, but this is the warning that the river is starting to come over your dike. Work on the dikes has ceased. The water is expected to break through. Keep your head about you. There are plenty of people around to help you out. You have places to stay. You will have food. You will have bedding. You will have everything. So don't panic. Just get yourself to safety as quickly as possible. I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. We're kicking off the 2022 hurricane season with a look to the past to prepare for the future. What you just heard were some 50-year-old bits of tape from Civil Defense and Department of Defense films that we found while researching Hurricane Agnes, one of the worst hurricanes to hit the East Coast mid-Atlantic states, and also one of the contributing disasters that ultimately led to the creation of FEMA. This 50th commemoration episode remembers the lessons Agnes taught emergency managers back in 1972, and how we've worked to improve hurricane response and recovery over the last 50 years. So 50 years later, Agnes is still the storm of record in many parts of the mid-Atlantic. So we caught up with Mike Builder, FEMA Region 3 Hurricane Liaison, and Rob Shedd from the National Weather Service. Hey, and stick around after the conversation as we share some amazing survivor stories from David DeCosmo, who had a critical role working the disaster, and Deb Kennedy, who experienced the disaster firsthand as a child. And so I'm joined by Mike Builder, program manager from FEMA Region 3, and then also Rob Shedd from the National Weather Service. Thank you both, Rob. Thank you very much for having us. Hey, great to be here. Let's just start off, um, Mike, maybe with you, and just tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, your position with Region 3, which is located in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yes. Um, So tell me a little bit about what the hurricane program manager does and and what you do there. So uh, FEMA Region 3 has uh, the following states. We have uh, uh, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and and the District of Columbia. And each of the coastal regions, or I should say that each of the tropical threatened coastal regions in the United States has a, a, a hurricane program manager. And what we do is we work with our various, uh, you know, threatened states, and we work very closely with them to ensure that they are ready for a hurricane response, primarily focused on evacuation is the is the biggest thing that we work on. Uh, we do a lot of the, we have these hurricane evacuation studies that uh, focus on uh, a lot of factors. That's where we get our evacuation zones. When we find out where the evacuation zones are, we figure out how, how people are likely to respond behaviorally. And then how many people are likely to go to a shelter. We take all that data and we finally start uh, modeling, doing some transportation modeling, at which point we try to figure out, which is one of the most important things to learn is how long does it take for them to get out of the evacuation zone? But the hurricane program also, especially in the mid-Atlantic, as, as Rob's going to talk about, um, in Region 3, we have a very uh, important inland component as well. Because in the mid-Atlantic region, it most of our tropical-related uh, 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 events are what are inland events. Inland rain. And, and, inland rain. 
Yeah. And so we, yeah, heavy rainfall, uh, extreme cr uh, flash flooding, river flooding, and that's uh, urban flooding. And that's very, um, you know, so we have to be prepared on both fronts, both the coastal side where we can very, you know, we get a catastrophic hurricane or a catastrophic inland event. And we're right in well, the middle Well, I suspect of that the development of the hurricane program is uh, maybe going to be one of the things we talk about later on, uh, um, uh, sort of an outgrowth of what FEMA has done to sort of develop that, um, you know, understanding for local emergency managers. So I think uh, we'll get there probably. But Rob, um, also, uh, so you're at the National Weather Service. Uh, tell us where you're located. And also, maybe talk to us a little bit about um, the Silver Jackets and the group that uh, you all are part of. So yeah, I'm the uh, service coordination hydrologist with the Middle Atlantic River Forecast Center located in State College, Pennsylvania. And so I've been uh, with the office for about six years or so. So our office is responsible for forecasting uh, mainly the larger rivers from New York down to Virginia. Um, so the area that really got hammered the most by Agnes itself. And so we work very closely with a whole lot of partners to try to get the best forecast information available as far as what's gonna be happening. And then the other program that we're involved with is the Silver Jackets, which is a state-by-state -state organization basically that's uh, coordinated through the Corps of Engineers, um, but has uh, representatives from a variety of federal, state, and local partners who are involved with uh, flood mitigation, water management issues. And so that's actually where some of this uh, project has come out of, has been a multi-state Silver Jackets project um, to commemorate Agnes, but to not just to remember what happened, but uh, to learn lessons from it as, that we can apply for today. So let's walk through the track. Let's let's talk about what happened uh, 50 years ago. Um, so, Rob, you know, sort of paint the picture of uh, what unfolded. The, the the initial parts of but before Agnes really was sort of the wet couple of months we would had um, going into the middle of June, basically. So April and May had both brought uh, sort of wet conditions across the whole Mid Atlantic, and that sort of helped prime the pump for what was going to be happening. And then the storm forms um, off the Yucatan Peninsula and then moved up the uh, Gulf Coast of Florida into the Florida Panhandle um, before track, beginning to track northward and then went back off of the Atlantic coast uh, and, be, and then reformed. And then, um, you know, most storms, a lot of times when they get to Mid-Atlantic, when they get up to North Carolinas or something like that, they tend to move very quickly uh, northward at that point. And Agnes uh, didn't do that, it, Agnes stalled and wound up uh, you know, remaining over the area for several days. And so that's really what uh, part of the real big con contributing factor was to uh, creating the massive flooding is that we had rain there for about five, con five consecutive days. Are there storms um, you know, in recent memory that are sort of comparable in the track? Um, it sounds like the stalling effect sounds like maybe Hurricane Harvey in Texas where it kind of hung out over Houston, um, but I, I I'm trying to remember a storm that started near the Yucatan and then, you know, sort of skipped through and then came up the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fairly common that to see a storm that comes up through that uh, Gulf Coast and then come up through through the Mid-Atlantic. So Ida last year had a very, you know, from that standpoint, had a somewhat similar track um, coming up across the Gulf Coast. Um, so it's not it's not that uncommon. A lot of our storms that we get, uh, you know, tend to be remnant storms really by the time they get up to our area. But there still can be potent amounts of precipitation that they're uh, producing. And and that's a, a very important point and something that I'm constantly uh, working with 
uh, both region three and our, our state's emergency managers. Last year, I compiled a list of storms that have impacted the Mid-Atlantic, Region 3, and I highlighted, just as an exercise, went and highlighted how many, how many of them were, were Gulf Coast storms. And, um, and a good you know, quarter, a third of them are Gulf Coast storms. And when you look at the names or which storms they were, we're talking about some of our heaviest hitters, uh, Camille, Ivan. Uh, we had Lee. We had Ida last year. Uh, and, and Agnes is probably the, the, on top of that list, but a very long list of us getting, uh, uh, seeing very serious impacts from these Gulf coasts. And it's, and so during the season when, you know, we're working, I'm working with Rob very closely, working with the hurricane center closely, and we're trying to keep everybody abreast. You know, sometimes I get, well, why do we care about that? That's in the Gulf. I'm like, no, <laughs> we have to, we have to be very concerned about anything that's going to make landfall pretty much from like Louisiana eastward. And, and so that's something that, uh, you know, if, if any of your listeners are, are kind of in the same realm, the response realm, even in any parts of FEMA, like that's, that's something you always have to be paying attention to. Do not let your guard down just because it's not a, an East Coast storm. So with the name Agnes, I have to suspect it was an early season storm. Uh, what, what time of the year was this? So Agnes occurred in the middle of June. So yeah, it was the first storm of the year, uh, very early uh, from that standpoint. Um, the other interesting thing about, you know, 1972 was there were only four storms that year. Um, and so, you know, none of them got more than category one status. And so it was very interesting, you know, from you, you look at the statistics and say it wasn't a very uh, powerful storm year. And yet at the same time, the results of that one storm um, were overwhelming. So let's talk about the significance of Hurricane Agnes. So um, how does it compare um, in your mind, looking back 50 years um, and knowing what maybe the world was, the region was like 50 years ago, why was it so significant? Well, I think what we saw with Agnes was we saw major flooding, um, basically from New York State all the way down to the Carolinas. And it's major flooding, you know, it was, you know, breaking records four, five, six, eight feet, basically, from what, what had happened before. And many of those records still stand today. Um, you know, individual locations, one or two locations get, uh, you know, broken in certain storms. But uh, to see those records still standing 50 years later, um, over such a broad area is really the, the impact is, you know, that large a storm over that large an area um, is really what, uh, you know, really shaped a lot of the Mid-Atlantic very, in very many ways. And, and how that translates, though, also is heavily, uh, the, the Mid-Atlantic is heavily uh, developed, urbanized, especially in our Piedmont area. So the Piedmont being the foothills between the mountains and the coastal plains, you know, very historically, lots of towns and uh, boroughs, cities, and, and these areas that have the, the terrain that is particularly conducive for extreme flash flooding. Um, and, and later on, you know, Rob might get into some of those other factors that for Magnus is why Agnes was bad. But anyhow, how that translated as far as the impact of what what that type of storm had, we're talking nearly 50,000 homes were destroyed or incurred major damage with an additional 65,000 homes experiencing minor damage and roughly, uh, you know, 7,500 farms and small businesses were destroyed or had ma major damage. And there was an extensive, uh, you know, damage to infrastructure, bridges, roads, railroads over the entire mid-Atlantic which is, you know, again, a lot of people live there. A lot of commerce happens there. And, uh, you know, the, like the roads are very important, just like they are everywhere else. But, you know, they seem to, you know, there's just a high concentration of that type of activity, as well as um, 
we have, uh, you know, the debris, there was like 43 million tons of debris that required removal and at least 4,000 channels of, of waterways that had to be, uh, had to be restored. And uh, it was the costliest tropical system up to that point in American history. It was about $2.1 billion, which today would be just, short, just shy of $14 billion in 2021, uh, in 2021 dollars. But it held that distinction for 11 years uh, until Alicia in 1983. So, um, and we, it's hard to quantify like disasters as a whole. Like, you know, how does this compare to the San, San Francisco earthquake of 1906? It's kind of hard. It, things get a little complicated when you look beyond tropical cyclones, but it was very clear uh, that it that it was uh, th it was considered the Hurricane Harvey of its day. It was you know it was uh, it ranked up there with some of the worst disasters in American history up to that point. And um, and I think it had a lot to do with where it hit. It impacted so many people. Became uh, you know hitting anywhere from near New York City down to D.C. Uh, you know you're gonna it, it got a lot of a national tension. Uh, and and so it really was a, like a, a, a monumental event. You've talked a lot about the Mid Atlantic, but um, you know specifically for those that aren't familiar with uh, you know kind of what we consider the Mid Atlantic, uh, and then how far inland we're talking about in terms of the flooding. Are we talking about all the way you know to Ohio uh, into Pittsburgh uh, and then down to Wheeling? You know, tell us a little bit about the topography we're talking about. So, so from Agnes' standpoint, the, the impacts that we had, the biggest impacts were certainly, say, the Susquehanna River Basin um, in, in eastern, eastern and central Pennsylvania. But certainly the impacts extended all the way out to Pittsburgh and into parts of the Ohio Valley as well, um, down into, you know, certainly down into Virginia, um, getting across over to West Virginia in some locations as well. And so I think that's sort of the general area that we're, we're focused so on. So just knowing that area, uh, there's, you know, obviously the flash flooding, but I'm guessing mudslides, you know, some of those other um, really yeah. consequential impacts. Yeah, yeah, certainly the, you know, all the rivers were transformed, I think, from, you know, erosion, uh, mudslides in, in definitely, definitely uh, was occurring. You know, you've got a lot of terrain, you know, cutting right through the middle of the area. And so, yeah, this is all becomes an impact. Mike, this is something that you've looked into for a pretty long time. So what uh, really motivated you to take a look at Hurricane Agnes, knowing that, you know, this was a storm that occurred 50 years ago, and there's been a, many very consequential storms um, throughout history, um, and some are sort of lost to history. But what drew you to Hurricane Agnes? So I was born 12 years after Agnes, um, but my family was living in Pittsburgh uh, when it happened. So my parents still remember seeing um, the Golden Triangle downtown flooded. Uh, even though I didn't witness it directly, I have lived my entire life in uh, in ground zero from Agnes. And I'm not saying my entire life was spent like in one county and then I just went to the next county over. It's so like a highly concentrated area. No, I'm talking, I've lived in six very different places uh, throughout my life and each of them what had, you know, was, was where there was uh, extreme flooding from Agnes. Um, the, so I, you know, I was born in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Uh, in fact, the church, um, there's a, there's a USACE report out there with the picture of the church I was baptized in, uh, that was flooded. And oh, by the way, the name of the church is St. Agnes. So I was literally baptized in the waters of Agnes, technically speaking. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, I, I grew up in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, up in the Tioga County. Actually, Wellsboro was saved because of mitigation. It's a beautiful little town. They even, they even based a Hallmark movie 
movie on the town. Just give you an idea of like the type of the type of town I grew up in. Um, it was saved by three reservoirs that they built through mitigation. The rest of the county, though, was heavily heavily destroyed. In fact, the entire county was cut off. They had air. They had to uh, bring through um, helicopter. They had to bring medical supplies and, and everything like that. The uh, then I, I went to school down in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, at Dickinson College. Dickinson College. Uh, so Carlisle got some bad flooding and Dickinson College decided to set up a shelter. And uh, the shelter was in my, uh, ended up being the same building that my freshman dorm was in. And my freshman dorm, and my freshman dorm room was a dorm room that was, or was a room used as a, as a shelter room for survivors of Agnes. And then I lived in DC in Northern Virginia, which saw a lot of bad Agnes flooding. And currently I live in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which uh, was also ground zero for a lot of horrendous flooding from Agnes. So um, I, and then I personally did witness the 1996 flood, the snowmelt flood uh, in the Susquehanna Basin, which was in, in other parts of the Mid-Atlantic, which was, uh, it, it's not, was not as bad as Agnes, but it was, uh, it, it rivals it uh, to a certain extent. And so I saw that uh, flooding I saw along the West Branch of Susquehanna in person, saw what major stage flooding looks like. And, and I will never forget that. So I kind of seen it, I've seen a taste of it. And, and so as you can see, like I've spent my entire life around people talking about Agnes. It was a monumental event. People in the central Pennsylvania, especially talk about uh, Agnes, like, or, you know, life about pre, before Agnes, after Agnes, it's, it's just, it was, it was, you know, I don't want to say compare it to 9-11, obviously, but it was like a 9-11 type event for people who went through it. It was before the flood or after the flood. Well, that's kind of interesting that you now, um, have evolved to be an emergency manager working for FEMA. And so throughout, you know, those sort of personal aspects or experiences that you've had, um, sort of having a connection to Agnes, what do you think uh, we can look back on the storm and learn from it uh, as emergency managers? There are countless lessons learned for emergency managers from Agnes, countless. Uh, the ones, though, that stick out to me, as far as if you were to ask, first off, I think is air operations, critically important. When you have something like Agnes, uh, and especially in terrain like the mid-Atlantic terrain, we have the mountains, we have the foothills, and then we have the coastal plains. But especially in those that those foothills, the Piedmont, um, where we have a lot of development, that flat wherever there's the flash flooding is where you could see very severe impacts to smaller roadways, uh, smaller bridges, um, you know, things that we take for granted uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, and that you don't realize how important they are until they're gone. And they're, or not accessible. And then as emergency managers, it's all about logistics, right? And, and, and search and rescue and, uh, and w during the response phase of this, of an incident like this. And so uh, we need things like roads. We need thing, you know, we need to be able to get things from point A to point B. So air operations was key. And, and it's not just the smaller stuff, it's the big rivers. We had several key bridges across significant rivers. Um, that were that were complete that were destroyed partially destroyed and had significant consequences and if you're along the susquehanna river and you have a major hospital complex on one side of the river that you're going to rely on in, a, in, a, in an incident like this and you're on the other side of the river and you lose that bridge how are you going to get folks to the hospital how are you going to get folks you know what, what, what do you need to do and at the end of the day it comes down to air operations and that's one of the big things i would take away from that um 
always working with the National Weather Service is, is a given. I mean, I don't know if it's a lesson learned. It's just something we do, you know, instinctively now. Uh, but obviously, there, you know, we're, you know, I worked with Rob very closely in the lead up to Ida. In fact, Rob's, uh, you know, Rob and I, a week ahead of time, you know, his his guidance to me is what got Region Three spun up for Ida very early and, and led to what we consider a very successful mission or activation. So, you know, that's, that's a particular given, but it wasn't a given necessarily back then. I mean, they worked closely with emergency managers, but not like they do today. So I want to make sure it's the lessons learned. The third thing I'd mention is, and we're going to talk a little bit about the transformation from civil defense to emergency management a little bit, but even though there were issues with emergency management back then, what was very clear was they understood the importance of their learning their lessons from previous storms and applying them for the next response and things like exercises. And, and in fact, uh, Virginia did a big flood exercise in April of 1972, 72, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, which was uh, where Wilkes-Barre is, which was a, a, probably the ground zero Agnes. They had a flood exercise two, two months prior. Uh, those were directly attributed to have uh, the successful responses that they had, uh, despite the devastation they saw. They also, Virginia actually, uh, had Camille, uh, two, three years prior, which is a horrific, uh, flash flood and, and riverine flood event and, and very destructive. Um, they took the lessons learned from that and directly applied it to their response for Agnes as, as, a, as a Commonwealth. And they were applauded for, you know, basically being better prepared. So I think that whole, uh, you know, the whole after action, the, the um, corrective action uh, process that we see through like national preparedness activities, like that's, I think, another critically important lesson. Rob, the Weather Service didn't have the same tools that um, we have now then, but we did have things like um, the civil defense, air raid sirens, um, and, and sort of other ways of alerting the, the public, uh, the radio. Um, what has the Weather Service um, learned from, from Agnes um, and storms of that generation, and how have they sort of applied them now? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the Weather Service today and 50 years ago, you're looking at a totally different organization. Um, you know, I mean, I think we've learned so much, you know, during Agnes, um, the power at the River Forecast Center uh, failed, uh, phones failed. And we had to, you know, improvise basically. So we didn't, you know, we were having to, at the end of the storm, we were having to forecast by lantern light, by hand, uh, you know, we didn't have the computers. So we have uh, invested in, you know, things like U generators, uh, UPS systems to prevent power loss, uh, communications backups. Uh, we now have our uh, computational systems back up as well now that's just been recently started. And so we've got more, many more tools to be a little bit more robust in these situations. You know, and then you just look at the, the, you know, the amount of data that we've got available today that we've never had, you know, before, you know, in terms of radar, in terms of satellite, in terms of the amount of uh, uh, ground, ground truth data that we've got. Um, another problem that we had during Agnes was uh, river gauges uh, failed. Um, to stop reporting either because of power loss or because they, uh, there was a maximum reporting limit that the gauges had because we didn't expect that we'd ever see storms this high. And so we, we've overcome a lot of those issues. Um, it's not to say that things are perfect. We can still have communications failures of different sorts, but uh, we've definitely come a long ways and you know, improved the way we can uh, communicate with, uh, effectively with uh, a large number of people. 
You two have done a tremendous amount of research um, leading up to this uh, 50 year anniversary. Uh, you've presented at the National Hurricane Conference, um, and I know that your uh, region and the Silver Jackets are doing a number of different things. What's really one thing that you would like maybe the listeners and emergency managers to really take away from um, the, the historic look back at um, Hurricane Agnes? I would say for myself, I would say, you know, it's not just a matter of looking back at history and finding, you know, all these cool things that happened. Um, it's a matter of what are the lessons to learn from it going forward. And first, of the, first and foremost is the fact that a storm like this can happen again. Um, you know, many of the people in these communities weren't there 50 years ago and don't understand the impact of what happened 50 years ago. And so to recognize that this, you know, a storm of this magnitude can and will happen again at some point. And, you know, what do we need to be doing to prepare? What is my personal risk that I've got? Um, where do I get information uh, regarding this information? And so I think that's, you know, from the standpoint of looking forward, that's what we need to be looking at. Rob's absolutely right. The likelihood of us seeing another Agnes or, or something that comes close is, you know, is, I would say, pretty, you know, it's, it's a likely event. In fact, we just saw it last year, uh, even though Ida didn't come anywhere near, uh, it wasn't nearly as bad as Agnes, but we're going to see a lot of those types of events. We've got to be prepared for it. And the last, the other thing too, I think it's an important, uh, thing to take away besides the response lessons learned I mentioned before is mitigation. Mitigation saved the day in Agnes. Agnes would have been exponentially worse if, if it weren't for a lot of mitigation projects that happened in the 30 or so years leading up to Agnes. And it was brought on by the 1936 flood, which is probably the flood that was actually worse than Agnes overall. I would, I would go on record as saying it was worse than Agnes geographically in a lot of respects. And that led the, the, that led Congress to say, okay, we need to do flood control nationally. And, um, and a lot of the projects that you saw that save the day during Agnes were projects that either happened because of the 36 1936 push, or there's a number of storms in between that kind of set reminders like, hey, we should probably be working on this. There's several examples of mitigation failing during Agnes, but there's there are tons of examples uh, of where mitigation truly saved the day. I mentioned my little town of Wellsboro, even some bigger examples of that. Um, and, and I think that's very important, and not just levees and dams and reservoirs, but also the other forms of mitigation the, uh, you know, that, that don't necessarily require building something. explored how the storm played out in the mid-Atlantic and wreaked havoc in some areas, we wanted to bring you two stories from Wyoming Valley in Northeast Pennsylvania of two people who experienced firsthand the devastation of Hurricane Agnes. First, we'll hear from Dave DeCosmo, who was at the center of the action during Agnes as a radio broadcaster. Back in the 1970s, emergency management was run a little bit differently, and Dave was deputized during the storm to work as a public information officer for our predecessor, the Office of Civil Defense. My name is David DeCosmo, and uh, I was, at the time of uh, Tropical Storm Agnes, uh, the news director of WILK Radio in Wilkesbury. Agnes was, as President Nixon described it in 1972, the worst disaster to hit the United States. This area was the hardest hit. This area lost thousands and thousands of homes. We had 
bodies disinterred from a local cemetery that the river broke through and washed coffins and bodies out into the streets. We had a major downtown business district completely destroyed. We had thousands of homes. We had one community where only a few, a handful of homes were not affected. When, when the storm hit and we knew that there was trouble in some way, shape, or form, uh, I would be calling the civil defense headquarters to try to get information on river levels and uh, precautions that people might take. And it was a disturbance to have to call them constantly. WILK was the emergency broadcast system station for our area. And consequently, we had a two-way radio located here in the sub-basement of the Luzerne County Courthouse. And it occurred to me that it would be better to come over and utilize that radio and be in on the conversations rather than constantly bothering someone here. My uh, boss okayed that. But when I got to the courthouse, I found that uh, with all the preparations civil defense had in place, the one missing element was a public information officer to get the information out to everyone as quickly as possible. And General Frank Townden, who was the civilian commander of civil defense, asked if I would take the job. Basically, he told me he needed me. And I called back to my boss, Roy Morgan, who was the chief executive officer of WILK, told him what the situation was. He said, okay, do it. You can still get reports back for us. That's fine. You can be the public information officer. So I suddenly took on a career that uh, I never envisioned taking on. Back here where you see those tables now, uh, we had ham radio operators set up their two-way equipment. There was only one working telephone in all of Wyoming Valley. And so all the communications were by radio, state police radio frequencies, the ham radio operators, even some citizens band uh, radio broadcasters helped us out. The information was coming in extremely rapidly from the various communities throughout Luzerne County. And some of that information was questionable. Civil Defense felt it was very important to have one voice to have the established facts released to the public. And to do that, our radio station took the lead. But fortunately, because of a colleague of mine, Ron Gilinardo, radio name was Ron Jay of WAZL in Hazleton, he started an idea that really mushroomed. Ron said, why don't you allow our station to pick up your signal and we will rebroadcast your signal. That led to us getting 13 area radio stations on board and doing the same thing every hour, a quarter after the hour for five minutes, we would broadcast a newscast strictly involving flood information. And that way you knew that information coming through all of those stations was approved by the folks at Civil Defense and had been legitimatized. People coming in here were bringing in information from the field. And some of it was very, very routine information. Some of it was information that led us to believe that the danger level kept rising and rising. And yet, 
at the end of that first day, there was a feeling that we might possibly be able to head off the river with a massive sandbagging effort. And so our broadcast going out on all those 13 stations was an appeal, an appeal to have 10,000 people come fill sandbags and put them in place. And we got them, primarily college students who were still in the area. And they spent hours and hours filling sandbags and placing them along the levee system until the realization came from river reports upstream from us that the upstream levels were just too high. There was no way that we could avoid a flood here. At that point, the decision was made, we were going to hit the siren. The siren's immediate impact was not an area evacuation, but to get the people away from the dikes, away from the, the sandbagging effort, they were in the most imminent danger. We hit the siren and it still sends a chill up your back to think of the siren going off and looking at the siren on top of this courthouse, watching the people run away from the sandbagging efforts. One of those lives that we lost was someone who didn't make it away from the sandbagging efforts. The two other lives that we lost, still a minimum loss of life in terms of the disaster, were rescue workers, which reminds people when you're told to get out and you say, I'm going to stay with my home, that sounds noble. But if you look at it in terms of history and what happened during Agnes, your being stranded means someone is going to come out to try to rescue you. That someone, that emergency worker puts their lives at danger, serious danger. And in Agnes, we lost a couple of them. Dave's story shows how far we've come in our capacity to bring information to the public. That being said, radio has definitely withstood the test of time and is a valuable tool to get the word out. We also wanted to bring you a survivor story. So we're going to hear from Deb Kennedy, who was on the ground seeing her town flood and barely escape the floodwaters. Her story is a great example of why we spend so much time and energy on evacuation planning and why it's so important to get out now, as Dave DeCosmos put it. My name is Deborah Kennedy. We are in Swarsville, Pennsylvania, um, and I grew up here. When Agnes was here, I was 10 years old, 1972. Uh, my, my whole family grew up on this street. This is the street where we evacuated from, from our house. My dad was driving and he said, don't, turn, don't look, don't, tu don't turn around. <laughs> And of course, when someone tells you that, that's what you do. You turn around and I did turn around and the water was coming up behind us as we were driving up. So, you know, there were some cars still coming up, but the, the water was already coming. We could see it, um, but we did get out just in time. And within no time, the water was, you know, halfway up this, this road. And all of, there were so many people that would congregate here at the Swarswell Borough building behind me. And... We would all be standing up here and you'd be standing here to watch how far the water was receding because you could see the water from this point and, and how far down it was going. But, um, and it was also here that people would come to get food. Um, also shots, everybody had to have shots because of um, the water and like the typhoid and different types of things. So, you know, it was pretty much kind of central to 
where everybody was. When we came back to the house, it was really incredible because you know, the water was up to the ceiling of the first floor and on the floor in the kitchen was a sugar bowl with the sugar still in it. So it must have floated up with the water and as the water receded, it came all the way back down and it was just left on the floor, but everything else was totally destroyed except that sugar bowl that was, was left there. I really think people need to be prepared by watching the news, making sure they're looking at the weather, the forecast, not just what's happening in the moment, but what's projected for a few days out, you know, and really heeding those warnings, um, you know, really listening and making sure you're up to date and listening to those official forecasts. It can be very unpredictable. The reports that were coming in said that mostly Wilkesbury was going to be affected, possibly Kingston. No one ever expected Swearsville to get flooded and you know, the dike broke and, uh, in 44 and, and that's really what happened. So definitely the storm's water is so strong, uh, totally unpredictable of what's gonna happen. So really wanna heed those warnings when they say to evacuate, evacuate. Don't wanna be stuck. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, the Silver Jackets, who are made up of FEMA, the United States Army Corps of Engineers, and the National Weather Service, have been hard at work at creating historic survivor videos, interactive story maps, and a webinar series commemorating the 50th anniversary of Hurricane Agnes. You can access all of this information and a lot more by following the link in the description of this episode.